Well, around this time of year, um, for the last four years or so, uh, we have done a series um, during Advent called Expectant, where we focus on the hope that we have in Christ, his promises for us, and how that affects us now. Um, in other words, what it means to live with expectancy and longing, not just trying to get the most out of the moment, which is how our world tends to live, but living in light of the end uh, with longing, expectancy, and hope in what God has promised to us. Um, God's promises for us, what is to come for us, is a huge part of the Christian life. The Christian life doesn't make sense without the resurrection. Um, So we're going to do that today and next week. We're going to take a two-week break, actually a three-week break, Um, but today and next week we'll, we'll do something along this line of this expectant series. However, it's going to be a little different this year, mainly because Ecclesiastes, which we've been going through, kind of goes hand in hand, is a good kind of companion to this this series, this idea. So we're going to kind of combine the themes of Ecclesiastes, of living, um, toiling, of dealing with the toil and frustrations and weariness of life and finding joy in life, and how that connects to living, uh, to the promises of God, to living with hope and expectancy in what is to come. So you can kind of think about this, uh, about this as kind of a continuation of the Ecclesiastes series, but we're going to be in different texts. Uh, we'll most likely be in New Testament both today, what well, we will today. I know what we're preaching on today. But uh, next week, most likely, we'll be in the New Testament as well. So today we're going to be in John 16.33. We're going to cover just one verse, and actually we're only going to, well, we're going to just focus on the second half of this verse. Um, we'll, we'll back out and can get some context so we understand it rightly, but there is much for us to mine in the Jesus' words in just this one verse. So let me read it. We'll begin working through it. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me read it one more time. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So let's get a little bit of context to where this is coming from. This is at the towards the end of a section of Jesus' speaking to his disciples called the Farewell Discourse. And it's called the Farewell Discourse because Jesus is nearing his death, he fully knows what is coming, and he spends chapters 13 through 17 in John talking with his disciples and mostly telling them what is to come, what they can expect in the days and weeks, months, years ahead. So just a snapshot of some of the things he tells them. Uh, He tells them that one of them is going to betray him. Another one of them, Peter, He tells, frankly, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you know me three times. And then just before our verse here, he tells all of the disciples that they're going to abandon him. They're going to scatter and abandon him. So all of the disciples will sin against Jesus in the coming days. They will not be there to comfort him and help him in his greatest hour. He also tells them that the world will hate them just as it has hated him. 
that they will be hated because of their connection to him. And history tells us that this is, in fact, true, that most of the disciples died because of their confession of Jesus. He tells them that he is going to be leaving the world and going to the Father. And he hints at it in John, but in the other Gospels, we know that he clearly tells them that he's going to die. And in fact, he must die. That's where he is heading towards. So when Jesus begins here by saying, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, there's a lot that he has just said that doesn't sound very peace-giving. Their lives are going to be marked by their own sin and by suffering, persecution. Their experience of life will not look like what comes to mind when we think peace. So, whatever Jesus means by peace, and earlier he also offers them fullness of joy, that he's saying these things so that they may have fullness of joy. Whatever Jesus means by these things, it's going to have to be a peace and a joy independent of troubles and experiences and tribulation of life. And so Jesus is quite honest about this. In this world, in the world, you will have tribulation. This is kind of a summary of everything he's just said. He's told them some encouraging things too, and we'll get to that. But in the world, you will have tribulation. Uh, this word tribulation means trouble or affliction that causes pressure. Um, sometimes it refers specifically to persecution from hatred, uh, trouble caused by others. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if you follow Christ, if you find your identity and hope and worth in Christ and you are living for him, you will at the least find yourself often at odds with the world. You won't celebrate its celebrations. You won't worship its gods and idols. You will often appear strange and out of place and you will be misunderstood if not outrightly persecuted. So that's some of the meaning of tribulation, but the word can also just refer to troubles in life in general. And so if you have the NIV or some other translations, they just translate this simply as trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. I don't know about you, but I've always found this statement by Jesus quite comforting and refreshing. Like, even before we get to the, the next half of the verse, just the blatant honesty of Jesus to just say, this is going to be your experience of life. No rosy-colored glasses, no beating around the bush, no sugarcoating, trying to make things seem better than they are. I mean, we should be kind of used to this now, going through Ecclesiastes for five or six weeks. Life is going to be hard. This was true for the disciples in, in the days to come. This was true for believers throughout history, and we all know from our own experience, that this is still true today. We are battered by sin and suffering, by our own sin and the guilt we feel, by others' sin against us and the trouble that brings, and then just by the weariness of life, as we've been looking at through Ecclesiastes, trying to figure out the meaning and purpose and peace and hope and of life, trying to find the key to life and not 
being able to fully discover it. Again, just hearing Jesus acknowledge that, yep, this, this is going to be your experience of life, has some comfort in it. So before we move on here, just sit in this for a moment. In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. Think about a couple implications of Jesus saying this. First, when you realize once again that life comes with trouble, when this gets thrown into your face again, first of all, don't think it's strange or unusual. Don't think that your, something in your life necessarily needs to change. Don't think somebody is necessarily out to get you or that God has something against you. No, this is life, including life as God's children in this world. And then secondly, and relatedly, if Jesus tells us to expect trouble in this world, we shouldn't make it our life's goal to be trouble-free. Don't stake your hope and comfort and joy and peace on being free from all trouble. Because it will find you. It will come. Of course, that doesn't mean we enjoy trouble, desire trouble, don't try to get out from under trouble. But there is something greater to live for, some greater endeavor and pursuit than just getting out from all trouble in life. Now, leads us to move forward to the next part of the verse. But take heart. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. This could be translated as take courage, be of good courage, even cheer up. And consider the juxtaposition of what Jesus has just said. In this world you will have trouble, and he's gone through what that trouble is going to look like. But take heart, be of good courage, cheer up. And so obviously, whatever Jesus is about to say that is reason for them to have courage and take heart can't be that their lives are going to be trouble-free, right? Jesus is not about to give them some secret clue to life where they can be free of all trouble and persecution and suffering and frustration. That's not going to be the answer he gives them. That's not going to be the means for taking heart. There must be something else, some other grounds for their ability to take heart and be courageous. So notice what does not follow this command. Notice how Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, eh, it's not that bad. But take heart, the good will hopefully outweigh the, the bad. Take heart, it's probably going to get better in the future. Take heart, just numb yourself with every distraction and diversion and pleasure you can because that's the best you can hope for. He doesn't tell us any of that. He doesn't tell us life will get better, at least not in this life. He doesn't tell us how to find peace deep within ourselves. In fact, he doesn't here at least, at least not first, tell us anything about ourselves or anything to do. What does he do? He points us to himself who he is and what he's done. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Not here's what you need to do, 
to be courageous, but here's what I've done. Now, before we even unpack that last phrase about overcoming the world, uh, just think about the nature of this command. This is not an empty command like be happy where the, the onus, all the responsibility is on you to activate it, to, to carry it out. It's not an imperative, go do this, without an indicative or this greater reality behind it that makes it possible. Right? This is how so much self-help and positive thinking techniques in our world work. It is all on you to figure yourself out, to know yourself, to improve yourself, pick yourselves up, and make your life better. And if you fail, well, either it's your fault or you just chose the wrong technique and go find another one. We can praise God that the nature of His commands for us, including this one, are not like that. God always provides the strength and the motivation and the grounding and the reality for every command He gives. Right? You see this throughout Scripture. In Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, there's a command. You, go do this. But as you likely know, it continues. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, it is not all on you to do this. God is the one giving you the strength, even the desire to do what He asks. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. So, you, go do this. Imitate God. Be Christ-like. But it continues, as beloved children, here is who you are. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So there is always this underlying reality situation that enables our obedience. God's work enables our work. God's love, we are told, compels our love. Uh, the big the astounding thing is not that we went out and found God and, and decided to love Him, but that He came and loved us, and all of our love and obedience is grounded in and motivated by what He has done for us. This is the pattern in Scripture. This is how God works. So, back to this command here. Take heart, I have overcome the world. There's the grounding. There's the truth, the reality. I have overcome the world, or I have conquered the world. What does this mean? Well, at the very least, just using logic to think about this, it means that the world and the tribulation we experience in it doesn't have the last word, isn't victorious in the end. The world and our experiences of it are not the last word on the rule of God, the victory of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. The world and our experiences of it are not the last word on our identity, on our hope, on our joy, on our peace. Who Jesus is and what he has done has the last word. Jesus wins, Jesus is victorious, and with him all who belong to him. To, to break this down and specifically apply this, this means our, our sin doesn't have to have the last word. Our sin doesn't have the last word. Just before this, as, as we saw, Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to desert him. In, in verse 32, he says, You will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. 
Peter now knows that he's going to deny, well, he might not believe it, but he's going to deny Jesus three times. Jesus' own disciples are not going to stay faithful to him. But in this moment, Jesus, fully knowing all that is to come, doesn't leave them to just sit in their despair and shame. He is intent on comforting them. Even in light of their greatest, their, their moment of greatest sin and, and weakness. Take heart. I have overcome the world, including your sin and its power. It will not have the last word. It will not separate you from me. Hear the words of Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So, our sin is really bad and damning. We were dead. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus, crucified on the cross and risen from the grave, has the last word. And no sin no matter how shameful, no matter how hideous and ugly and secret can say otherwise, has any power over the cross. Do you know that in your life? Even if you don't feel it all the time, do you remind yourself that that is the truth until you begin to feel it? Secondly, unpacking this, death doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. So part of the comfort that Jesus and the peace that Jesus means to give his disciples in this section um, is that he, he has told them that he is going to his father to prepare a place for them, and he will come again and take them to himself. In other words, death is not the end. Death will not be and is not the final interpreter and judge of life, which means that the value of our lives isn't determined by what we can extract from these 70, 80, 90 years. The value of our lives is not determined by maximizing our pleasure and minimizing our troubles. But if we find life troublesome, troublesome then woe is us. No, Jesus has overcome death and has the last word, and every act of faithfulness done for his glory will be worth it, will be vindicated, will lead to joy. And not just joy in the future, although certainly that, but also joy and peace now is what Jesus is speaking of. Because we know the future. We know what will happen. We know what is worth it in the end. And then thirdly, whatever tribulations or troubles or disappointments or weaknesses we find in life will not have the last word. So look, consider the contrast between, in verse 33 there, between in me you may have peace and then in the world you will have tribulation. We have in Christ and we have in the world. All of us experience life in the world and all of its troubles. And if you do not belong to Christ, these troubles are and ought to be seriously troublesome 
because they appear to have the last word on your life. But if you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ through faith, you have a deeper identity and experience along with that. Yes, you are in the world, but before and behind and over and above that, you are in Christ. This is the the main way by far that the Bible refers to Christians. This is who the Christians are. They are those who are in Christ. Paul says this in some form over a hundred times. If you are a Christian, you don't just believe some things. You don't just have some benefits like salvation and justification and adoption. You have Christ. You are His and He is yours. You belong to Him. You identify with Him. All that is in Him is yours. His death for sin his righteousness, his joy, his love is yours in him. Sinclair Ferguson writes, the benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. They cannot be extracted from him as if we ourselves could possess them independently of him. In other words, you don't have salvation in yourself. Salvation is in Christ, and you have Christ if you belong to him. All the benefits of the gospel are in him, and he is ours. And in this position, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, says Paul, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, he confesses, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Life is full of tribulation. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what your experience of life may suggest, no matter how you might be tempted to interpret who God is and who you are, based on what is happening to you or how you feel, you cannot be separated from God's love if you are in Christ by faith. So, that is the grounding, the reality that makes possible the command to take heart in your life, here and now. Be of good courage cheer up. Take heart. Not simply because you ought to. Not simply because it does a God body good to be joyful, although that's probably true, but because it is the good and right appropriate response to who God is and what he's done. And no amount of sin in your life, no amount of suffering that you experience can change that reality. D.A. Carson comments on this, and he says, Jesus' point is that by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. From this, they take heart and begin to share his peace. So what is most true 
and significance in your life? Where do you find worth and meaning in your life? Is it the troubles you face? Is it sin in your past that you still deal with, the repercussions of? Is it sin that you are still battling and feel like you are losing that battle most of the time? Hear Jesus' words to you. Take heart, be of good courage, receive my peace, for I have overcome the world. Nothing can separate you from me. Sinner, bowed down under the weight of weakness and guilt, do you hear what Jesus is saying? Take heart. I have overcome sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin. Come to me for forgiveness and welcome and freedom. Mourner bowed down under the weight of tears and loss and questions without answers. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Nothing can separate you from my love. I will work all things together for your good. And weary traveler, tired of the toil of life, take heart. I have come to give you rest. Come to me. Trust in me. If this was Jesus' intent, as he is leading up to his death, if he was intent on comforting and strengthening his disciples, who would go on to desert him, if his mind and heart was so full of love to turn and comfort and strengthen them in that moment, if there was reason for them to take heart and be courageous and cheer up in that moment, then surely this side of the cross, he says the same thing to us. And there is reason also for us to be courageous, take heart, and be of good cheer. For he has overcome the world. And we know that. Let's pray.